0: You know... I was at a gas station just a while ago. Went there to pick up some smokes. While I was there... I saw one of those little bastard kids that... You just know... Will someday... Grow up to be a complete asshole to everybody later in life. You know what I mean? The specifics may vary... In this case, the little fucker was screaming at the top of his lungs because his mother wouldn't buy him some candy. But it could be anything. Maybe he'll be in the supermarket shrilling away. Maybe he'll just give you the evil eye at a restaurant. As I say, the specifics may vary. But always, and without exception, you are 100% certain that this type of little fuckwit is going to grow up and behave exactly the same way as he does right now. He'll be the douchebag... that picks on everybody in high school. He'll be the asshole boss who demands you stay late no matter what... and probably for a mistake he made. That's who this little prick is going to grow up to be. That's him. Now... we all want to go over there and pimp-slap the little kid. And not because we enjoy random acts of senseless violence, either. But because by smacking him upside the head, there's a very slim chance that we may avert catastrophe and spare the world yet another dipshit. It's a very slim chance. However there's a really damn good chance that if you do that you will end up in prison so of course you don't actually smack the little twerp but it's on your mind it's definitely on your mind and what the hell is wrong with you mothers out there anyway nobody wants to hear your little brat scream his heart out shut the little bastard up it's not cute or assertive or creative. It's really fucking annoying and in a fair and just society not only would we be able to get away with smacking the fuck out of your kid but we could then smack the fuck out of you for never correcting this type of behavior yourself. Has this ever happened to any of you? Am I the only one who's thought about this? Hmm. Just wondering. is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears Buddy to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. good. Hey everybody, how's it going? Trentus Magnus here. I assure you I'm not the kind of person who actually wants to go around kicking everybody in the balls, and I welcome you to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. This time out, we've got a show so good it'll bust your balls with a sledgehammer. There's a subject, a particular subject, I've avoided like a punch in the balls and not because I don't want to talk about it, but uh, because there were other things that just seemed more important. Still, this is kind of a pink elephant in the room, and it's probably better to just get it out there. This is going to be a serious ball-burner, so sit back, relax, and get something to drink. This time out, I'll be reviewing Batman Earth-1 One, Volume 1, written by Jeff Johns, penciled by Gary Frank, inked by Jonathan Sabal and colored by Brad Anderson. The basic idea behind the Earth One line of original graphic novels is to make official what has long been the comic book industry's policy of living off trade paperbacks and hardcovers and catering to a wider retail market beyond the comic book dorks who collect single issues month in and month out. These stories exist outside of the mainstream DC continuity so that the creative crew can be as creative as they want to be without the inconvenience of having to fit in with what previous creative crews have done. It'll be just lovely to see how this pans out in 10 years, assuming the industry has that long. The tone of the Earth-1 volumes up to this point are completely different from any other comic book ever published in the history of the industry in that they attempt to take a realistic approach to the material, which is a totally original idea for Batman. Nobody has ever attempted to tell a Batman story set in a realistic world before. Not sure if any of you knew that, but I of course am on top of things as usual. Superman, Earth-1, Volume 1, was the first in the series to be released, which I'm sure angered Batman fans everywhere to no end because many of them have never completely made peace with the fact that Superman was created a year earlier than Batman and canonically is usually the first superhero to appear on the scene in the DC Universe. As is true with the rest of their publishing history, Batman, Earth-1, Volume 1, was released about a year after the Superman volume, And much of the hype centered around the fact that it was Jeff Johns and Gary Frank who would be working on it. And so it is that we begin the review of Batman, Earth One, Volume One. The book starts with a rank amateur Batman screwing up while he pursues a character we later find out is named Jacob Weaver. Batman's homemade equipment doesn't work and so Weaver ends up getting away. We flash back to the night Alfred first arrived at Wayne Manor during Thomas Wayne's mayoral uh, run. It's clear that there have been death threats made against Thomas, and so he called his war buddy Alfred Pennyworth to help with the security. Like an idiot, though, Thomas disregards his own bodyguard's advice and then leaves him at home while he takes his family out to a movie. The movie is interrupted by a power outage, Bruce runs outside the theater, and after that the Waynes live up to their sole literary function— Back at Wayne Manor, Bruce sulks over the fact that his father's stupidity got him and his mother killed, while Alfred is shocked, shocked, to find out that the Waynes named him as Bruce's legal guardian if the worst happens and Thomas Wayne's idiocy cost them their lives. Alfred is reluctant to accept the responsibility until the police captain makes it clear that Bruce's only other choice is the foster care system. Alfred introduces himself to Bruce and tells him he's his new butler. We return to the modern day at a Gotham City police station after dark where Barbara Gordon drops off lasagna for, for dinner for her father, Jim Gordon. Jim scolds her for being out after dark and only reluctantly lets her take the bus home by herself. He's then summoned to the captain's office where he meets his new partner, reality TV star RV Bullock. And Bullock makes it clear he wants to make a name for himself by finally solving the Wayne murder case. We flash back to Bruce's childhood when he attempts to open the Wayne family mausoleum, gets swarmed by bats, and sees a bat-shaped suit of armor. Yes sir, you have to wade through the symbolism here. Back in the modern day, Alfred and Bruce have differences of opinion over Bruce's methods. We flash back to Bruce's childhood when his friend Jessica stands outside of what's left of the Arkham family home. Jessica dares him to go inside, but before Bruce can explain why that's a horrible idea, Harvey Dent shows up, bullies Bruce a little, so Bruce cold cocks Dent and the fight is on. Back in the modern day, Alfred and Bruce continue having it out over Bruce's, Bruce's methods. Alfred says he'll stick around just long enough to solve the Wayne murder case, how Jacob Weaver, an employee of the mayor, is connected to the, to the murder of, uh, of Thomas Wayne by having Thomas Wayne's cigarette lighter, then solve the case, and only then can they hopefully put all of this behind them and have a normal life. But first, Bruce needs somebody who can, make his gadget, uh, who can make his gadgets work. Bruce meets with Lucius Fox, a nobody equipment engineer at Wayne Medical Group, and promises to put him back on his pet project if he gets his grapple gun working properly. Meanwhile, Gordon tries to talk Bullock out of interrupting a crime in progress, but Bullock attempts to make an arrest anyway. Unfortunately, both the perp and Gordon have to make it clear to Bullock that Gotham operates on different rules than any other place. It becomes clear here that Gordon looks the other way about lots of things and is pretty much knuckled under to whoever the real power in Gotham City is. We cut to Bruce making his first public appearance in quite some time at the mayor's celebration of Gotham's 300th anniversary. By the by, the mayor is Oswald Cobblepot, the Penguin. The Penguin makes it clear that Bruce is practically Gotham City royalty because the Arkhams and the Waynes built the city together. And as Bruce is both an Arkham and a Wayne, there you go. Penguin invites Bruce to partake of anything he wants at the party. We then cut to an unknown location where a character, later dev- to, later revealed to be the birthday boy, does bad things, and that's about as much as I want to say about it for right now. Back at the party... Bullock attempts to get some FaceTime with Bruce, but Bruce brushes him off as he watches Jacob Weaver leave the party to go up to the roof for a cigarette. Up on the roof, Batman attacks Weaver, but then gets ambushed by Weaver's friends because Batman didn't bother checking for anybody else on the roof before moving against Weaver. They call for police backup and a real fight ensues. Batman even smacks Gordon in the face. From there, Batman gets grazed by a bullet, falls off the building, and barely manages to use the grapple gun to save himself. He crashes through a window and lands on a buffet table. He and Alfred barely manage to escape from there. We we flash back to Martha and Bruce strolling past the old Arkham house. Martha makes Bruce promise to never go in there. Back in the modern day, the news replays Batman's disaster at the Gotham anniversary celebration. Penguin attempts to find out what Batman wanted with Weaver, but Weaver doesn't know himself. We then cut to Penguin having dinner and handing a judge's daughter over to the birthday boy as punishment for that judge not getting Jessica Dent off his case. Penguin then puts a hit out against Jacob Weaver for the birthday boy to take care of. We cut to Alfred sparring with Bruce to teach him how to fight Dirty if he's serious about being Batman. So Bruce fights Dirty and takes Alfred down. We cut to Jacob Weaver's apartment where he gets murdered by the birthday boy. We cut to the police department where Harvey Bullock pulls the Wayne murder files out of the cold case section. However, Bullock... Signs them out under Gordon's name, not his own. He signs them out under James Gordon's name. A record keeper receives a notification about all of this and rats Gordon out to the mayor's office. We cut to Barbara Gordon unknowingly being stalked by the birthday boy, presumably as the mayor's punishment for Gordon's supposed review of the Wayne murder files. From there, Bullock invites himself over to Gordon's house with the Wayne murder records in tow. They discuss, Wayne, uh, they discuss Jacob Weaver's murder, but are interrupted by Axe, the perp Bullock beat up earlier, calling Gordon from Barbara's phone to warn him about checking out the Wayne files. Gordon puts two and two together and gripes Bullock out for what he did, but Bullock talks Gordon in, into standing up to Axe and everyone else, so he and Bullock find Axe and beat the holy piss out of him with baseball bats to find out where, where Barbara is. Meanwhile, Batman checks out Jacob Weaver's apartment. He finds Rust on the floor and realizes that the character must be at the old Arkham House. Yes, Robin. The only possible explanation. Outside the old Arkham House, Batman can hear Barbara Gordon inside shouting for help. Barbara manages to untie herself right as the birthday boy comes into the room. Batman breaks into the house, sees a picture of his mother as a young girl, and continues searching for Barbara. Bullock and Gordon aren't far behind Batman. Batman. Upon getting inside, they somehow get separated and Gordon runs into Batman. Gordon assumes Batman is somehow mixed up in this, so he attacks and Batman kicks his ass a little bit. They are interrupted when they hear Barbara shout for help. They both run off looking for her, and Batman crashes through a wall to find the Birthday Boy in the middle of attacking Barbara. Gordon manages to get Barbara out of there while Batman and the Birthday Boy beat the hell out of each other. Bullock tries to intervene and help Batman, but the Birthday Boy slams him through the floor through the floor, you understand, and into the basement for his trouble. There, Bullock finds a lot of Birthday Boy's leftovers, and that's all I'm going to say about the subject for now. Batman manages to take the Birthday Boy down, and then rescues Bullock from the basement. We cut to the mayor's office, where he gets a report that there's a problem. But before he can even get any kind of details about about it, Batman is in his office. They beat each other up, and then the penguin unmasks Batman. The Penguin confesses everything about the Wayne murders to Bruce and moves in for the kill, but Alfred blasts him with a shotgun and the Penguin falls out the window. If the shotgun to the chest didn't get him, crashing into the pavement did. The Penguin is definitely dead. Gotham News Media, have a field day and we're treated to a montage of the birthday boy being cuffed and booked for murders I don't even want to get into right now, while Lucius Fox makes batarangs. Gordon arrests Axe. Barbara designs a Batgirl costume... Bullock picks up some liquor... Bruce announces to Alfred that Batman is only just getting started... And then a tease of a cameo appearance by the Riddler. Okay. So, as I said... The basic idea behind Earth-1 is that, among other things... It would feature a more down-to-earth and realistic tone. Because, you know... We haven't fucking seen enough of that already. No, no. To me, this was easily one of the biggest flaws of the book. In the interest of fairness, I should say that the tone of realism might not have been Jeff Johns' responsibility. Or was it? Isn't he the chief creative who's he what's this at DC? Doesn't he have enough pull at the company to find an approach that actually distinguishes the Earth-1 universe from the mainstream universe. It's unknown, and probably unknowable, since nobody ever asks Jeff Johns these types of questions. But, either way you look at it, it's a really fucking idiotic approach to take to a Batman comic book at the moment. It's very similar in tone to what the mainstream Batman comics have been doing for a lot of years now. It's also too similar to Chris Nolan's Batman movies for my taste. If you like those movies, good for you. I'm happy. But I'm sick as hell of that approach to Batman. But because Jeff Johns and Gary Frank have a good track record of copying what movie adaptations have already done, they were the obvious choice for Batman Earth 1. I mean, it really is a no-brainer if you think about it. None of this is to say there are no good ideas in Batman Earth 1 Volume 1. A good example of Jeff Johns definitely having his thinking cap on is setting Martha Wayne up as an Arkham. That was so clever an idea that it actually baffles me why nobody has ever thought about that before. Still, I'm kind of torn about Harvey Bullock. I like the idea of a reality show cop moving to Gotham City. I think it's clever. The issue, though, is that I wish it had been a brand new character, because I've got a pretty specific vision of Harvey Bullock, and a clean-cut TV star is almost the complete opposite of it. Then again, the end of the book could be suggesting that Bullock is on his way to becoming the slob with a heart of gold most of us prefer. The Penguin as the Mayor was another good idea. It suits the pomp and vanity of the character pretty well. I mean... A TV show and a movie have both toyed with the idea of the Penguin running for public office. So why not go the full nine and get him elected? It's a smart move for Johns to make. Unfortunately, though, this this leads into what is by far my biggest complaint about this book. Namely, The Birthday Boy. The Birthday Boy is by far the most revolting and disturbing character I've ever read in a comic book in my entire life. In fact, I'd say that characters like the Birthday Boy are everything that's wrong with modern comics. Guys, there's an entire sick and disgusting part of society that none of us want anything to do with, and a child rapist and murderer is pretty close to the top of my list. The less I know about that kind of shit, the happier I tend to be. I don't need or want to open a comic book and read about the absolute worst real-life society has to offer. In my opinion, Chris Nolan sucked every last bit of fun out of Batman. But I'd say that what Jeff Johns did is worse because he ran with the idea of absolutely no fun, but also injected all these creepy-ass horror movie elements. Now, let me just pause here and say, I usually outright fucking hate it when comic book fans play the escapist card, and so I'm not going to do that here. But at the same time, there are a lot of sick, sick people out there who victimize other people in sick, sick ways. And I'm at a point in my life when I'm, I'm past not wanting it to happen anymore... I'm to the point I don't even want to know what goes on. Now, it's not Jeff Johns and Gary Frank's fault that I'm disgusted with modern society. But it is their fault that they apparently thought nothing, absolutely nothing, about putting something this depraved into a comic book. There's simply no excuse for this. None. Nobody needs to see this. And then there's Gary Frank's art. Now, I'm mostly familiar with Gary Frank from his run on Supergirl, where his creepy style fit the book like a glove, and Superman, where his creepy style is close to the total opposite of what Superman should be. I've only glanced at his work on Hulk, Supreme Power, and some other stuff. I'm told that his work there is first-rate, but I also assume it's similarly dark and freaky. What I can say, though, is that Gary Frank's Bruce Wayne looks nothing at all like Adam West, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, or Christian Bale. So there's that. I thought his Thomas Wayne bore a slight resemblance to Christopher Reeve, but maybe that's just my imagination. This book is creepy as hell, and Gary Frank's Vertigo Light style fits the tone of it very well. Under the circumstances, I'm not sure if that's a compliment, but it's the truth. Several pages sickened me just looking at them. Now, throughout all the press, and all the hype, Johns kept telling us that Frank is a Batman guy. And that may well be. But I'm not sure I want to see more of Gary Frank's Batman. Especially if Jeff Johns is writing it. I don't always do recommendations, but in this case, I'll make an exception. I do not recommend this book. Not to anyone, and especially not to kids. There are things in this book that kids simply don't need to see. This isn't mature. This isn't thought-provoking. It's dark, it's macabre, it's horror, and it's horrible. Do not read this book. Do not buy this book. Do not monetarily support something this awful. It may be well-written on a technical level, but it's still abjectly foreign to what Batman stories ought to be. Look, people, I long ago realized that, as Denny O'Neill might say, Batman has evolved beyond my sensibility. I'm well aware. I enjoy reading my old back issues because that's a Batman I not only recognize, it's a Batman I can like. But I eventually reached a point where I realized I had to be a Batman fan on my terms, nobody else's. And to me, that means comics from the mid-80s up through the early 2000s. To me, with some exceptions, that is Batman. And part of this is how... Some Batman fans have behaved, particularly since Batman Begins first came out, when they've just behaved like completely pompous dicks. I'm well aware that some of this is my reaction to that contingent of the fans. Trust me, got the memo. All of this is to say, though, that I have to acknowledge that Batman Earth-1 Volume 1 is not intended for me. I have no idea what audience it's aimed for, but it sure as shit isn't me. If you enjoyed this book... Honestly, I have no idea what to say to you. But if you enjoyed it, whatever. Good on you. But I didn't. I've outlined my reasons why. And at this point... I think I'm washing my hands of Batman Earth-1. In general. This isn't Batman. This isn't Batman's world. I don't know those people. I don't recognize that world. And I want nothing... To do with those stories. And I think that's about it. Yeah, 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 play it. <clears throat> Come on, yeah, play it loud. <clears throat> play it loud. <clears throat> and now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks, internet radio broadcast illogic, foolish emotions, a constant irritant, and transpire out freaks. True! Come in the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. oh. It's a super prize. 9388 dollars morning. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go away, Baden. And now. <laughs> together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts. Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake! And yeah, goddamn lucky did kill all him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid, you have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. So you're looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia, you... I say shut up! to True truefreakscom Okay, and welcome back to Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Today I'm going to be discussing Superman 2 and I'm really not sure some of you are going to like what I have to say. Now, I'm not going to recap the story of Superman 2 because if you haven't seen it yet, you really need to go watch it. And if you have seen it, a recap is a redundant thing for you, so either way, I'm not going to bother getting too far into that. Also, I don't want you to think of this as a review, per se. Uh, The idea is to bring up A few points about Superman 2 that have always bothered me. So I'm gonna skip the scholarly analysis of it and you know the uh, the themes and the deeper implications of Superman 2. Save all that stuff for some other time. I also don't want to get too much into the blood and guts of Superman's history on film, but at the same time a little bit of background might help to put this episode into some kind of better context. Superman 2 was principally shot while production was underway for Superman the movie. Richard Donner would shoot all scenes that are relevant to, I don't know, the Daily Planet News office. He'd he'd shoot those all at once. Then he'd move on to the Fortress of Solitude, shoot all of those scenes all at once, so on and so forth. However, there came a point in the production when the bean counters reasoned that if Superman the movie was going to meet its release date work on Superman 2 would have to stop so that the cast and crew could refocus their efforts accordingly. So, after Superman the movie was released, um, Richard Donner was fired and not allowed to finish Superman 2. As a side note, I'd like to say that I don't have a fucking bit of sympathy for Donner about this. Uh, He was apparently willing to tell any reporter who'd listen what a bunch of assholes he thought the Salkinds were, and I suppose the Salkinds eventually found out about that. If any of you were stupid enough to smack-talk your boss to the international media, you would deserve whatever you get, and what Richard Donner got was shit-canned with extreme prejudice. I have no sympathy for him. So, Richard Lester was hired as Donner's replacement, and he completed work on Superman 2. However, Richard Donner did kind of get a chance to finish his version of the movie and 2006, saw the release of Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut. Allow me now to break away from fan orthodox and say that both movies are pretty bad. The Donner cut of Superman 2 is easily the worst of the two. Now, before I get into my complaints about the movie, allow me to talk about what I, what I kind of enjoy. And before we even get too far into that, I want you to understand that all of my comments refer to Lester's cut of Superman 2. Because, to me, Lester's theatrical version is canonical. To me, that is Superman 2. So, Richard Lester shot several new scenes so that he could be properly credited as the uh, director of Superman 2. Several of those scenes included shots of Superman in action. For as good as the flying effects were in Superman the movie, the flying, the flying stuff shot for Lester's cut of Superman 2 is even better. The effects technicians had learned a good deal from Superman the movie, and they, they were able to come back after a while and use those, use those techniques to better effect in Lester's cut of Superman 2. Also, Christopher Reeve was on his A-game for Superman 2. Uh, again, he was, he was great in the role of Clark Kent and Superman and Superman the movie, but he takes his performance to a new level in Superman 2. At the same time, Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor is slimier and even more dangerous than Superman 2. We don't really get to see a whole lot of Ned Beatty in Superman 2, but I enjoyed the scenes that we did get. I thought they were comparable to the ones from Superman the movie. Jackie Cooper as Perry White and Mark McClure as Jimmy Olsen were both uniformly good in their roles even though they just don't have a whole lot to do in the movie as to the others Terrence Stamp's performance turned Zod from an, uh, from an, an obscure Superboy villain from the 1960s to one of Superman's most iconic villains also Sarah Douglas as Ursa is probably why I have a thing for goth chicks so enough said there at the end of the movie, Superman uses some kind of amnesia kiss on Lois to make her forget about his dual identity. Now, a lot of people bash on that, but I rather like it. Superman is trying to spare Lois the pain of losing the man that she loves. She'd carry that with her for years, maybe for the rest of her life, and it would never completely go away. Now, Superman can't, rem- he- he can't remove his own pain, but he can ease hers. And so he does. I think this ending works a million times better than the original time travel ending because Superman and the world both have to live with the consequences of his decisions. He doesn't get to hit the reset button and just start all over. What he can do, though, is ease Lois's pain by, take, by taking away something that would probably hurt her for the rest of her years. Superman chooses to suffer in silence and all by himself rather than subject her to living with the consequences of, of his bad judgment, and I love that because it 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 attaches real consequences to what Superman did. It it just works so well for me. So <clears throat> those are some of the good things about Superman 2. However, Superman 2 has a surprising amount of outrageous flaws and problems for a movie that's come to be so highly regarded by fans. If Smallville, or Man of Steel, or Lois and Clark, or Superman the Animated Series, or any other adaptation had Superman 2's problems, it would be burned in effigy, and fans may well lynch those responsible. For starters, the entire premise of, uh, of this movie is that Superman and Lois fall in love. Now... By itself, that's a little hard to believe because Superman and Lois have only had, what was it, like five or six scenes together by the time Superman flies her to the Fortress of Solitude. And by the way, guys, one of those is the scene in, uh, at Niagara Falls where Superman doesn't even talk to Lois. I'm just trying to put in as much as much padding in there as I can at most. You only have like five or six scenes together. And it's because of that, it's hard to imagine someone as level-headed as Superman being so careless with his own heart. It's harder still to imagine that Lois would fall for him because there is there is no acknowledgement that he's been lying to her this whole time about his true identity. I'd have been pissed off if I was in Lois's shoes about all of this. And on top of that, let's face it, Superman threw his powers away just to get laid. People can put whatever idiotic BS they want on the other side of the argument, but at the end of the day, Superman only shacked up with Lois so he could play hide the weenie with her. It. It's as simple as that. Now, we live in a society which looks down on someone who lies about his true identity and then lies about his true motives just to get into some chick's pants. But Lois is not only cool with all of this, she doesn't try too hard to talk him out of giving up his power. She pretty much rolls with everything and doesn't seem bothered by the fact that she's been lied to and misled about everything this entire time. Later on, there's a pretty impressive showdown in Metropolis. Now, it looks dated by modern standards, and there's no getting around that. The entire action set piece is a product of the late 70s, and it looks like a product of the late 70s. And that's unavoidable for any movie. So my problem with the Metropolis battle isn't how cheesy some things look these days, because any movie is usually going to look like a product of its time. In Superman 2's case, it's actually quite the opposite. I think the Metropolis battle has a ton of production value under it. It uses rear-screen rear, sc- rear screen, uh, projection and wire effects for the flying sequences, and they all look, for the most part, just, they, they look great. There are tons and tons of model cars and buildings, lots of practical effects, such as explosions and streets caving in, and lots of other things. By the standards of its time, the fight sequence in Metropolis was probably a smorgasbord of awesome, and several parts of it look cool, even today. So... My problem isn't with the fact that parts of the Metropolis uh, battle look a little bit quaint by modern standards. It's more that Superman doesn't really cut loose during the fight. One of the things fans enjoy in the comics is Superman going toe-to-toe with someone more or less on his power level, whether it's Captain Marvel or Mongol, Darkseid, Brainiac, anybody. If it's someone who's on his level, it's, it's always a lot of fun when Superman uses his fists, throws punches, tosses people around, and all that stuff. But that's really not what we see in Superman 2. In Superman 2, Superman comes off looking kind of like a wuss. He never really gets tough with the Kryptonian villains, and by and large, they never really get tough with him either. Say whatever you want about Man of Steel, but it showed us a Superman who isn't afraid to kick the ever-living snot out of somebody when they need it. And that kind of thing is not dependent upon budget. It could have been done at no additional cost in the 70s as easily as today. There's, practically speaking, there's really no difference between showing Superman punch Non in the face versus Superman do all that Sissy Mary kicking and stuff. So, much later on in the movie, Clark Kent returns to the diner to face Rocky, the truck driving bully who'd kicked his ass earlier in the movie. Clark didn't have superpowers at the time... And Rocky sucker-punched him... And then he beat the stuffings out of him. So... Clark was hurt bad, guys. He didn't need... I mean, he he would need a trip to the hospital... After a beating like that. But here's the thing. Superman would let that go. Number one... All Rocky really did was take Clark down a peg. And let's face it. At that point... Clark needed to be taken down a peg. He needed to understand what he'd just given up. Any normal man could get beaten up like that, but Clark isn't and wasn't supposed to be a normal man. Clark needed to be taught a lesson. But number two, Superman wouldn't go so far out of his way just to teach one bully a lesson, especially under those circumstances. I'd have thought he'd know that after 12 years of Kryptonian brainwashing, but whatever... And here's another thing. Whether he paid for the damages or not, Superman wouldn't tear up someone's restaurant just to teach the bully a lesson. He wouldn't. Would not. And guys, you cannot blame this scene on the Salkinds or on Lester. This was written by Tom Menke-Watsis and shot by Richard Donner. This train wreck of a scene is all on them. But the biggest flaw of Superman 2 comes in the showdown in the fortress. After Superman tricks the Kryptonians into thinking he'd just given up his powers, he crushes Zod's hand into powder. And then he throws Zod across the room where he plummets to his death. Nan tries to intervene, but ends up falling over and plummeting to his own death. After that, Lois turns on Ursa, punches her in the head, and she too falls to her death. Superman grins at Lois, they hug each other and talk smack to Lex Luthor for a while, and then fly off, leaving Lex to die in the Arctic. And shit, in the the Donner cut, Superman brings the fortress crashing down while Lex is still inside. But as I say, we're not going to get into the Donner crap here. Superman, and this is the point, Superman either killed, let someone else kill, or else passively sat by while powerless people died. Now you 're possibly saying, "But Magnus, but Magnus, deleted scenes show that the villain survived. Look, take your deleted scenes outside. all right? nobody cares. if it 's not in the movie, it didn't happen. if it 's not in the movie, it didn't happen. if it 's not in the movie, it didn't happen. The movie that people saw in theaters show those people fall to their to their deaths. The VHS tape and the laser disc. uh, releases in the 80s and 90s showed those people falling to their deaths. There is no version of the movie you can buy that shows the villains surviving. In fact, I don't think the deleted scene was even made available to the public until 2006 with the Richard Donner cut. But it still wouldn't matter because it's not in the movie. And if it's not in the movie, it didn't happen. Period. Now, the internet pretty much broke in half when Superman killed Zod and Man of Steel, but I'd argue Superman did a lot worse in Superman 2, and nobody has ever whined about it, but hey, I guess if you, if you put Reeve in the movie and Blair the Williams theme loud enough, people will accept anything. Well, I don't. Superman 2 has a lot of good things going for it. I'd even say it's a good movie and I enjoy watching it, but I'm sick and tired of people bashing on Superman 3, Superman 4, Man of Steel, Smallville, and other things for their problems while ignoring the zillions of major problems that Superman the movie and Superman 2 have. All I'm really trying to do here is broaden the conversation a little bit and show that these two movies are far from perfect. In fact, in certain cases, I'd, I'd go so far as to say they're outright fucking atrocities. If you can live with this stuff... Henry Cavill snapping someone's neck shouldn't be any great moral barrier for you. But, what do I know? You've decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics... These are the people you used to pants in high school, and yet you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, weekly at 2TrueFreaks.com. The dawn of an age, the founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Uh, Look what's happening to you. You're... Angel. Oh Reed, not so you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And half mankind shall feel that's mine. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You oh. Earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am a Thinker. I vow never to return, my Lord, until the Fantastic horror is no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ramatops, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Four. You're just a muscular freak! Blind or halt! Stop! We must not enter the castle of Diablo! My, My journey has ended! This planet shall sustain it and deliberately drained of drain all, all elemental, all elemental life. life! So, be Galactus! Flame on! It's in time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning. Witness the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast. Lipson. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at magnus.libsen.com. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind. And that's a promise. If you enjoyed the show, review it in iTunes. If you didn't enjoy the show, review it in iTunes. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, easy, and can help spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promo can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is copyright Magnus Media Enterprises Limited, Wisconsin Falls, California.